We've been in this series on prayer, and today we're uh, looking at a prayer from the belly of a fish. Now, before we get to Jonah, uh, a little church family update for you. Uh, Earlier this week, our staff team went down to Oak Cliff to spend a day at our newest church plant, Good Shepherd Oak Cliff. Now, the story behind this this actual building is kind of cool. It was built in 1936 as the Davis Street Baptist Church. A few years ago, the church uh, folded and it was bought by a developer, and now it has become a wedding and event venue in Oak Cliff. Uh, But they don't get a lot of requests for Sunday mornings, so we asked if we could rent it out for Good Shepherd. And it's a beautiful uh, uh, space. Our whole staff team gathered together uh, in the sanctuary there. And when we started singing in this space, uh, which you can see here, the, the acoustics were unbelievable. And it was just one of those moments where, in worship, where you kind of get caught up in this sense of God's presence. Like the Holy Spirit is always with us, and we know that, but sometimes you just sort of sense it in a deeper way. Now, I share that with you because if you're newer to HP Prez, for the last few years, uh, we have been launching new congregations in new neighborhoods, or in, in different neighborhoods around the city of Dallas, sending out leaders and pastors, all connected together, though, as uh, one church, uh, one family of churches with the same mission, the same Christ-centered, grounded in Scripture foundation that we've had for almost 100 years. We started out in Old East Dallas with Peak Street, which just recently expanded to two Sunday worship services, then Grace Lake Highlands, which is growing like crazy. Last fall, we launched Good Shepherd in Oak Cliff, which has replaced Peak as the chief hipster in our church family. Um, And a few Sundays ago, just one little glimpse, uh, a few Sundays ago, we welcomed 900 people through the doors of these church plants, many of whom are are new to faith or haven't walked through the doors of a church in a long time. All that to say, all that to say, lives are being impacted. Uh, Generations of, of both younger followers of Jesus and those who are older who are new to the faith, we are growing and we get to be a part of something that's pretty cool that God is doing in our city. Now, running after a vision that big has meant trusting God to provide resources. This is not blind trust, but a lot of wisdom goes into this. But I just want to give you some data points. Last year, our elders increased our annual budget goal by $3 million dollars. And that's based on encouraging giving trends, a lot of new givers. And the really good news is that so far this fiscal year, giving has been higher than we have ever seen, more than a million dollars ahead of last year. The not so good news is we're still about $360,000 below where we had aimed to be at this point in our fiscal year, which ends at the end of August. So to everyone who is giving faithfully and sacrificially, Thank you for your trust. Thank you for believing in what God is doing in and through this mission. If giving as a first percentage of what God has given you is maybe kind of a newer thing, I want to encourage you to think about it, have a conversation about it, pray about it. Maybe that feels like a big step to say, God, I want to give back to you a a small portion, a small percentage of what you've enabled our family to earn. And I know this may sound like a canned pastor routine, but I I just, I so believe this to be true, and I have experienced it. Our family has experienced it. When we give, it is an act of discipleship, of trusting God, and it will change your heart. God will give you, as we're going to talk about today, and as Emily prayed over us today, he will give you his heart for this city, his heart for the hurting, his heart for those 
who don't yet know his son, Jesus. So enough about that. Maybe I'll pray and then we'll dive into Jonah. Do you see what I just did there? Okay. Lord Jesus, you are head of the church and we thank you for your faithfulness in the good times and the hard times. And we pray that you would keep us humble and dependent on you and trusting God that you are able to do more than we could ever ask or imagine. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, turn with me to the book of Jonah. It's page 982, if, I'm, if I've got my numbers right. 982 in that Bible there in front of you. And let's just get right into it. Jonah is a prophet among God's people. And one day God calls out to Jonah and he says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh wasn't just a random city, like, I want you to go to Milwaukee or something like that. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, which in that day was the global superpower. The Assyrians were famous, among other things, for their brutality at war. Whenever they conquered a new uh, nation, a foreign nation, they would go in and they, they would often practice mass genocide. Men, women, children. In fact, sometime earlier, a part of Israel's kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians, and entire Israelite tribes were exterminated by the, by the Assyrian army. So you can kind of imagine how Jonah, a prophet, a leader in Israel, felt about Assyria. Just deep-seated hatred. It's hard for us to imagine. And one day Jonah hears from God, and God says, I want you to go to Nineveh, to your enemies, to the people you have grown to despise. I have a friend who says it like this, Nineveh is the place where God calls you that you do not want to go. So how does Jonah respond to this word from the Lord? Jonah packs his bag, he gathers up all his things, he says goodbye to Mrs. Jonah, and he gets on a boat, but that boat is not headed to Nineveh. Instead, he goes to Tarshish. So in the middle there, hopefully you can see this, in the middle there you see Joppa, that's where Jonah is, and off to the east you see Nineveh, where God has told him to go, and then Tarshish, where he actually goes. I remember when I was uh, trying to figure out and decide where I was going to go to grad school for seminary, which I grew up here in Texas, this was home for me, and while I never heard like a very clear, you know, Jonah-esque voice from the Lord, um, for the longest time, I sensed, I thought that I was called, that I was supposed to go to seminary up in New Jersey, in the Northeast, okay? So the Jonah thing would be kind of like if I got it in my head that, you know, Northeasterners and New Jerseyans, they were not really my kind of people. Like, they're pessimistic and cynical and cold and off-putting and irreligious. And it'd be like, instead of New Jersey, two weeks before the semester began, I decided to go to seminary in Vancouver, British Columbia, which is exactly what I ended up doing. Like, I could not have picked a farther location on the same continent. So that's my little Jonah story. It worked out okay for me. The skiing was a little bit better in the Pacific Northwest. Story didn't work out so well for Jonah. So this man of God, a prophet who has given his life to the teachings of God's people, whether it's fear, hatred, ethnic hostility, racism, Jonah runs away from the very people God had called him to go to. He says, I'm not going to Nineveh. Why would I go and live and serve and bless the people that I hate? There's something in the heart of Jonah that is closed off to what God is doing. Jonah does not believe that God's love, his mercy, his blessing, and his rescue is something for all people, not for Nineveh, not for my enemies. 
And this has kind of had me thinking about all the times, without even recognizing or registering it, how often I make little snap judgments about who God is for and who God is against. And it's interesting, most of the time, that list lines up pretty closely with who I'm for and who I'm against. The story goes on. We're told, he went down to Joppa and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. A couple things to notice here. Let's leave this scripture up for a moment. Pay attention to the language of going down. And we're going to come back to that. Then there's this little detail of Jonah paying the fare. It's kind of an easy to miss thing. Jonah paid the fare. And that day, money was a pretty, still a pretty new thing. This was mostly a bartering economy. Currency was quite rare and something that only the wealthy had access to. So the fact that Jonah could pay a fare, pay his way onto a boat that's going to travel 2,500 miles away, it tells us something about Jonah. Jonah was a man of means. He had access to resources that most people wouldn't dream of. It's a curious thing about money. Sometimes money makes us think that we can run away from God. Money can give us a false sense of freedom that we are actually in control, not God. So Jonah boards this ship and they head off to Tarshish. Now, what do we know about Tarshish except for the fact that it's hard to pronounce? Tarshish was a hub of wealth and commerce. This was a happening city, a growing city. There were a lot of rich, high society, cultural elites living and moving to Tarshish. Major multinational corporations were moving their headquarters to the northern suburbs of Tarshish. Right, the new PGA Tarshish was about to open up, and everybody was pretty excited about this. The city was so well known that the ships of Tarshish became kind of a symbol in different cultures of that day, a symbol of unchecked wealth and greed in the Old Testament. So God calls Jonah to go and live among his enemies, and instead, what does he do? He uses his wealth to run from God to a place of opportunity and comfort, a place where he would be surrounded by people kind of like him. And if you know the story, it doesn't work out so well for Jonah. We're going to go pretty fast through the book of Jonah here. On the voyage, this epic storm attacks the ship. And it's about to sink the boat. We're told they're throwing the cargo overboard. I mean, that's kind of the whole purpose of the voyage. So that means like this is a really bad storm. Meanwhile, as all of this is happening, where is Jonah? Where's Jonah? Verse 5. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep which I've always been fascinated by this. I don't know a lot about boats. I don't spend a lot of time on boats. But if you've ever been on a boat in really choppy waters, where's the absolute worst place to go if you don't want to get sick? Down below. Like, you go down there and you are done. Not that I have any experience from that, but I haven't been, you know, back deep sea fishing since. So Jonah is asleep down in the boat while on top of the deck, all of the sailors and the mariners and everybody else, they're afraid for their lives and they're trying to save their lives. And we're told in this moment that each of them, each of the sailors cried out to their God. It's interesting what happens when the storm comes. A lot of times when a storm blows in, people start to pray. Ever notice that? And each of these sailors, they begin to pray to their own God. Isn't that true how storms have a way of exposing our idols? Our gods, 
Think about that in your own life or in the lives of people that you care about when uncertainty strikes, when you get news that something tragic has happened, when someone gets laid off, when a test result comes back positive, when a child ends up in the ICU. Where do you turn first? Where do you go to? What, what do you run to for comfort? Do you think about how much money you have? Do you start to worry that maybe you don't have enough? Do you take comfort knowing that you're a powerful, well-connected person, lots of connections, and you always seem to be able to network your way out of a crisis? Maybe you have a little escape where you look for comfort in the form of a bottle or a pill. Storms have a way of exposing our gods. It's a scene loaded with irony on this boat with Jonah The storm comes in and the pagans are praying while the prophet is sleeping. Time and again in the Jonah story, the notion of religious superiority, who's religious, who's pagan, is like being turned totally upside down. It is this undercurrent in the book of Jonah that God is at work in the most unlikely people. Eventually Jonah wakes up. He goes onto the deck and he says to these pagan sailors, he says, I know, I know what is causing this storm. I have tried to run from God. And if you want to calm that storm, if you want those waves to calm, throw me overboard. But they don't want to do it. In fact, we're told that the crew did everything they could to try and save the life of this stranger named Jonah, who for them was, he was just another foreigner who worshiped a foreign God. Think about that. Their compassion for his life is in total contrast to the hatred Jonah has for Nineveh. These pagans show far more mercy to a stranger than the prophet of God ever showed to the people of Nineveh. So the ship crew, they do everything they can to try and save the boat and to save Jonah's life. But verse 13, we're told they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done it, done as it pleased you. So now they're praying to Jonah's God. So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. And then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows. Again, the irony of this moment, this pagan boat becomes this place of worship, of prayer, of the offering of sacrifices. Of course, the story just gets better from here. We're told that after the sailors throw Jonah overboard, that God provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah and for three days, hello, For three days, Jonah lives in the belly of the fish. And just to be clear, the word whale is never used in the book of Jonah, nor is the word Pinocchio. But this story, this story sometimes brings up the question, I mean, a guy living in a fish for three days, did this really happen? Is this really true? If so, what kind of fish was it? Like, how is this scientifically possible? Scholars have written dissertations outlining the feasible living conditions required for Jonah's aquatic subintestinal survival. And even though they're legit questions, they're good questions, sometimes they can kind of keep us from asking the real question. What is God up to in this book? And what is God revealing to us about his heart? So while he's in the belly of the fish, Jonah prays. For the first time in this story, other people, he's a prophet, remember. 
First time in history. Other people have been praying. The pagans have been praying. But for the first time, having hit rock bottom in the fish's belly, the prophet prays. So here's kind of a takeaway as we're learning together as a church about prayer. It is never too late to pray. It's never too late to pray. If you were to read through Jonah in one sitting, which I would encourage you to do later this afternoon, do it sometime this week, it just shows you the, 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 the incredible nature of this text. But if you were to read through Jonah and just highlight or underline every time you see this language of going down, Jonah goes down to Joppa to get a ride to Nineveh, down into the hold of a ship, down into the sea, into the denial of what's really going on, down into sleep, down into the belly of a fish. But it is never too late to pray. Why? Because there is no depth God will not go to raise up even those who have been rebellious against him. It is never too late to pray. So what does Jonah pray while he's in the belly of the fish? It's a strikingly beautiful, poetic, hymn-like prayer, which again, some folks don't really know what to do with this. I mean, how could a guy in such dire straits, I mean, he's barely holding on for dear life, how could he pray something so rich and thoughtful and structured and moving? How could he pray anything other than, help, God, get me out of here and get me out the same way I came in. I mean, just how could he pray something so amazing? But here's the thing. Jonah was steeped in the prayer book of his people, the Psalms. These prayers which over the years had begun to inhabit him so that when he hits rock bottom, couldn't go any further down, couldn't be any more hopeless, he prays what his mind and his heart has been trained to pray. When we're down in the depths and scared out of our minds and headed into surgery, we pray what we've been trained to pray. Jonah prays the way he does because his whole life he's been praying the Psalms. That's why we're learning together to pray scripture back to God. So listen to Jonah's prayer. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, it's kind of the language of death and hell. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall, look, shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds, the seaweed, was wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars close upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And then we're told, after he prays, that on the third day, on the third day, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And some of you are thinking, that is just gross. Why does that detail have to be in the Bible? 
Here's the point. God has a plan for Jonah, and God is able. And no matter how far Jonah tries to run, no matter how deep he falls, down to Joppa, down into the ship, down into sleep, down into the sea, down in the belly of the fish, our God is able to reach down and raise us up. So Jonah, having been through this rather traumatic experience, finally makes the trip to Nineveh. And he shares God's message, and it is a terrible sermon. Here's what he says. This is his sermon. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Let's pray. <laughs> like, that's it. No intro, no engaging, winsome kind of connect with the audience, no draw them in, no stories. In 40 days, you're all going to burn. And we're told that the people of Nineveh, in response to this, they believed in God and they fell down in repentance all the way up to the king of Nineveh himself, who then issues this proclamation. He says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. This city thought to be an enemy of God's people, barbaric, savage, and now they are worshiping the living God. Prayer broke out in the city. Notice that the king calls for an end to violence. That's what happens when the gospel breaks loose. The real miracle of Jonah is not about a fish. It's about an entire city humbling themselves and falling to their knees before God. Which has had me thinking, do I believe that that can still happen today? In a city like Dallas or Seattle or San Francisco, do we believe that God in his mercy could move so powerfully that an entire city, maybe the very people we thought were so far beyond saving, would cry out desperately to God. Jonah didn't think it could happen. Maybe he didn't want it to happen. But God has a heart for Nineveh. God has a heart. He cares for that city. As the story ends, Jonah is just mad at God. Once again, right? for showing mercy to his enemies. And he cries out to God. He says, how could you love them? How could you show mercy to Nineveh? And here's how God responds. And I want you to see this. God says to Jonah, this is the last verse in the book. God says, and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Apparently God lo loves cattle. We'll get to that another time. People, though, who do not know their right hand from their left. In other words, they don't know the difference between right and wrong. They have lost their moral compass. They can't agree on what's true and what's false. Does that sound familiar? God says, should I not have pity? Should I not be moved with compassion and long to see them wake up and change their ways? And then there's this other little detail. Did you notice that he called it the great city? 
the great city. Four times in, in the book of Jonah, God himself calls Nineveh the great city. Jonah is a book about God's heart for the city, for the people of a city, for the flourishing of the city. There's a reason that that word city is a part of our vision, leading all generations to find and follow Jesus for the flourishing of our city and beyond, because it's not just about us. It's about God's heart for the city and for people who don't yet know him. And so I'll close with this, and then Emily's going to come up, and she's going to invite us to the table. How do we know God's heart for those who don't yet know him? How do we know? We're told elsewhere in the scriptures that Jonah was from a little town called Gath Hefer. And just a few miles down the road from that town was another little small town called Nazareth, where one day another prophet would grow up. And you think about the lives of these two prophets. Jonah was asleep on a boat during a great storm while everybody else is afraid and panicking for their lives. Years later, Jesus would be asleep on a boat. And then through his actions, just like Jonah, he would calm the storm. Jonah came down to Joppa, down into the ship, down into the sea, down into the fish. Jesus came down from heaven, down from royalty, down into the weakness of a child, down into poverty. He knelt down like a servant. For three days, Jonah went into the deep water, into the depths of Sheol, the great symbol of death, and on the third day, he was raised up by God. When Jesus gave his life on the cross for three days, he too was swallowed by death. His body lay in that dark tomb, but on the third day, Jesus was raised up. And every time we come to this table, we remember that the God of Jonah and the God who came down to us in Jesus, he gave his life for us so that anyone who receives him, no matter how far they have run from God, they too can be raised up into new life. So Jesus, we thank you that you are the God who gives your body and your blood to lift us up out of our sin, out of death, out of rebellion. And we thank you that you can do that even in these moments as we receive your presence at this table. Amen.